Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. He is here to answer your questions. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and welcome to those who are listening to the program this evening. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home. This is a 90-minute program and we are here to answer your questions. If you are thinking, man... Brother Nathan, my question is very simple. My question is surely everyone else knows the answer to it. I don't want anyone to know that I'm the one asking the question. You can send it via WhatsApp or text message and just put anonymous, and we won't even connect what area code your phone number is from to what country or what region of the world. We will just say, Pastor, we have a question. So you can send any question as it pertains to life, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview. No matter how you are joining us on the program tonight, how you are listening, welcome, and we are glad that you have made time in your Tuesday evening in order to listen to this episode of That's Truth. And we trust that you can stay with us for the entirety of the 90-minute episode. We're going to start out with a question that has come from the Southern Caribbean. Pastor, the question is, is it all right for a believer to partake in susus, In susu? This is what susu is. In a traditional susu, the members pay a fixed equal amount of money into a common fund on a weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly basis and take turns getting paid out of an agreed-upon schedule. The group selects a treasurer who collects the members' contributions. Is that something Christians should be involved in, Pastor? Well, some people may not be familiar with the term susu. I think down in um, St. Lucia, I think they call it the box, having a box, serving a box. Uh, I I have no problems with uh, people engaging in this activity. It's really morally and spiritually neutral. Uh, It's a kind of a cultural means of uh, a form of saving, and it can be very helpful uh, in easing uh, one's financial strain uh, because it is a reserve of funds that you have, and you get one lump sum. Uh, I think it's good for people. I think it teaches discipline, uh, fiscal uh, discipline, um, I also think that it um, fosters the mindset of saving as opposed to consuming and spending. It's a very simple form of doing it. There's not nothing really um, that is sophisticated, and it encourages 
financial prudence uh, for persons. And I think it offers a valuable sum of money when you want to have a project, uh, say by the end of the year you want to do some kind of a small business or you need to buy something, some um, um, new piece of furniture or something that is costly. Um, it comes in very, very handy. handy. Um, but I do feel that it is fraught with danger. Uh, the biggest problem, of course, is the integrity of the person who's responsible who collects the funds. Uh, if you have a person who um, pilfers the fund or, or flies away to New York with the funds, <laughs> you're in real serious trouble. Uh, there's also the danger that uh, those people who already get their fund, because some people get it, it's, it's like a, um, you get, you know, everybody gets a different month. So that one person would get all uh, in January and the other person would get it in February. It's possible for the guy who gets his in, in, in um, January to not pay it so the other guy that is to get uh, doesn't get the full amount. Everything rests on trust, to be honest with you. It's just like the banking system. I mean, people put their money in the bank, and the only reason you put it in the bank is because you trust people that are there. Um, but in the case of SUSU, it's hard to recover your loss. Um, I mean, do you go to court? Is it worth getting a lawyer to go through the whole process? Uh, you know, uh, and I am not too sure what are the legal ramifications uh, for people who engage in that in case it's a loss of some kind. The other thing is uh, the delay that some people do in, 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 in um, giving their, their money. They, they, sometimes they're supposed, supposed to be given every month. Sometimes it might take three months before they give it. So yeah. it, it creates a lot of, it really is a strain on people who are really depending on it at the time uh, for happen. And sometimes, too, it's frustrating to have to keep reminding the participants that it is due, it is due, it is due, it is due. It is due. It can be very frustrating uh, for the leader. But I think it's a matter of discretion. And I would uh, think that people who uh, are getting involved in this thing make sure that the people are all believers. They are people of integrity and honesty, and they can be held to account in in some form. But um, there's no thing right or wrong about it. It's just a financial investment that is done. And I've been involved in it, I think, once or twice already, and it came in very, very, very handy, I must say. But it all depends on the group of people who are engaging in it. So you just got to be very, very cautious. And, you know, it's a risk. So if you're prepared to take the risks, um, you don't get interest or whatever it is. It's just like saving your own money. But sometimes it's very hard for people when they got the money in their pocket to spend it. But to put it away, uh, that kind of discipline forces them actually to save. So I think it has some um, really good features of it. And I think it's a good thing. I think people can be trusted to do it. I would encourage it, to be honest with you. I remember when I was... Well, it was a number of years ago, a Christian man mentioned to me, he said, money can ruin friendships. And he said, if you're going to loan money to a fellow believer, only loan the amount that you are willing to walk away from and not ruin the friendship over. Sounds like good advice. (laughs) Sounds like really, really good advice. The other thing, Nathan, is that um, the Bible says that uh, when it comes to other believers in relation to other believers, we we should work harder for a believer than an unbeliever because he's part of the family. 
But that is not the mindset. There are people who say, well, you know, he's my brother. He wouldn't understand, uh, you know. Or they visit, uh, if I'm using an example, they visit you, you you got a good library, and say, can I borrow this book? The intention is not to give back the book. You know, he has so many books, he doesn't need that. <laughs> Sounds like a voice of experience. Something <laughs> yeah. happened to you. <laughs> yes. But I, I, I really think it's a good thing. But as you said, you know, be prepared for the risk involved and don't get involved to the extent where it's going to ruin you financially. And if something should happen, be prepared to walk away from it. Or I think they might have legal recourse, but I'm not too sure the, the cost of going through this whole process, if it is worth trying to recover or what might be there. But a lot, everything really depends on integrity and honesty. And I think it's good for believers who can do it, a good group of young men, for example, or good people, good group of people from the church or ladies or whatever. I think it's a good thing for, the, uh, for members. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.40. Our next question says, Good evening, Pastor. What does greet mean in the word greet in Second John chapter 10, or Second John verses 10 and 11? And let me read that for you. I believe they're referencing the New King James. It says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And then they follow up by saying, Now knowing that persons are deceivers and antichrist, should it be common courtesy for persons who go contrary to this doctrine? Well, I think the best way to understand the passage basically is to get behind the the uh, cultural and historical setting when John wrote this particular passage. And in the first century world, in the what you call the Greco-Roman world, it was not uncommon to have itinerant preachers or sometimes even philosophers or teachers traveling from one city to the other, one location for the other. This was a very familiar uh, phenomenon back in the first century world. Such traveling uh, Christians or um, self-proclaimed teachers, uh, religious le- uh, leaders, etc., relied upon the local believers to, for support and hospitality. And uh, if you look at um, Third John um, five um, five to eight, uh, Nathan. All right, Third John verse five to eight says, "Beloved, thou doest faithfully." Whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Verse 7, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. And verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Yeah, that's an example of what was involved in the first century world, traveling uh, preachers, teachers, and the other brothering that they go to the city, they would receive them, take care of them, give them hospitality, take them in. You know, they, they, was no, you didn't have a hotel that they can just go into, so it was normally stay at the home and they would help to feed them, etc., etc. So what John is really cautioning here about is to be very discriminating uh, and welcoming people and uh, taking them under your care and showing hospitality to those, especially uh, if you're aware that they're uh, uh, fostering false doctrine, false teaching. Uh, you don't want to encourage 
uh, endorse false teachers. So therefore, don't show that kind of hospitality. Um, it's not just like you know, uh, hi, how do you do? That's not that's not what is really involved in this whole process. The whole the whole concept behind this word that is used here is the idea of being hospitable to them and caring for them. Uh, so it's not just hi, how do you do? Good evening, whatever it is. Uh, so he's he's just cautioning them uh, about uh, if there are any false teachers, um, not to in any way receive them into your home, not to host them. Uh, not to commend them even when they're leaving. Uh, God bless you, you know, do the work. Um, and not to, for them to be able to use the fact that you've entertained them as a basis to, for their propaganda and their false doctrines. You're going to be very, very careful as far as that is concerned. Uh, so these people are not entitled uh, to hospitality uh, when it comes to the um, those who are going around pandering, false teaching, etc., etc. However, let us be very, very uh, clear as well. Um, John doesn't t- tell us what to do um, and how to minister to people within the the, the, the the cultic group who are teaching false teaching. It's not what he's talking about. I mean, it doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation with them. It doesn't mean that uh, there may be times when they come to our home that we don't entertain them as believers or as on par with us. But there's nothing wrong to say, you know, if you really want to uh, deal with this matter, um, let me deal with it. On, on this basis. In other words, you're trying to instruct them. John doesn't go in that direction. And by the way, th- this seemed very uh, harsh and mean for Christians to be responding this way because the modern mindset is that we have to be tolerant. Right. But that is not the mindset of the New Testament writers. They never countenance the idea that we must be tolerant to false teaching because they understood the danger of false teaching. And that is why they warned believers not to uh, sure, Christian charity, basically, by entertaining and, and being hospitable to these type of people. Uh, you're actually supposed to warn the brethren and used to avoid that kind of interaction uh, among them. There's one other verse that's worth mentioning. Look at Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9 reads as follows. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able to by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Right, so that is the ministry there of a person handling the word that is able to gainsay the person who opposes, who denies, or who speaks against truth. So we have a responsibility there to be knowledgeable enough to be able to refute them. But we're not given the mechanics or the methodology or the location or, the, or whatever we're supposed to do that. So I think we need to use this question. If I felt that... Uh, uh, a cultic group was visiting in my area, uh, and I'm a pastor, and I have neighbors, I would not be inclined to invite them into my home because they may think because the pastor invited them, okay. I'd be more inclined to maybe sit, uh, stay at the the, the, uh, the gate or the door, and I said, can we discuss it here, et cetera, et cetera, talk, whatever it is. So I think it's a matter of discretion. But the whole idea is if you know somebody's teaching something that's false, it's contrary to biblical Christianity, you must not be tolerant of them, and you must not in any way entertain them or be hospitable to them in your home as though there are normal um, believers who hold to the tenets of biblical Christianity. It's a clear warning about using your discretion in, in, in handling people who would visit your church or visit your area. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.46. We are here to answer your questions. You can call and ask them live on the air. 
by calling 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. We appreciate your interaction. Another question that has come in, Pastor... Listeners sent a video which spoke about a Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia area where the women in the church dress provocatively in order to attract men to church. The listener wants to know what you think about this methodology. Well, I think the church should be closed down, to be honest with you. Uh, A church like that, and if it is endorsed by the leaders of the church, even if it is not endorsed by the leaders of the church, if it is perceived... And from my understanding, I didn't see the video, but I understand that it was pretty kind of raw, to be honest with you, and it was not worthy of uh, actually seeing it yourself because it, it, it was that provocative. Now, if it is that provocative, quite clearly, there's something wrong with that church. And I would uh, think, and that's the problem today, you know, because we live in a free society and we live in a democracy, um, anybody basically can start a ministry and start a church and uh, garner people uh, to attend. And uh, what attracts people today is not doctrine, is not biblical teaching. A lot of people want entertainment. And, of course, uh, along with the emotion, the entertainment, um, there are people who are looking for sex partners. And for church to facilitate that by allowing women to dress provocatively so that they can get men, uh, that's not a church. That's a social club, and it ought to be called what it is, but it should be closed down, and people should not attend that kind of a ministry. But what if they're dressing that way in order to get people to men to come to the church so they can hear the gospel? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You don't, you don't pander sex to get people into the kingdom. As a matter of fact, I'd be very honest with you, I would be appalled if there's anybody who's not a Christian would be attracted to a church like that. I mean, why would a, a, a person who really searching for God, seeking for God, seeking to, to know truth, attend a church like that if it's very much aware that this is a flesh pot? And that's all the people are, are selling, quite frankly. You might go there if you want to have a one-by-night stand or you want to just have a, you know, nothing that's really serious. But in terms of becoming godly and, and walking in righteousness and obedience to God and the pursuit of holiness, um, I, I can't perceive of any person wanting to attend that kind of a church. So that church can only garner uh, people who are catering to the flesh or who want the flesh. There's nothing spiritual about that ministry. And I think, quite frankly, it's a false church, a church that should be closed down. Uh, but again, um, you know, people say live and let live. Uh, that may be in a democracy, but quite frankly, I condemn it, and it's wrong, and it's evil, and I, I would not encourage anybody to attend that church. Thank you for sending in that question. Another question that has come in, good evening, Matthew 12, verse 36 says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Would comedians be deemed to be speaking idle words? Again, uh, let's try to get the context of what is meant there in that passage and what idle words our Lord was speaking about. If you look at the same passage, Nathan, and look at verse number 24, because the person make reference to verse 36, but look at verse 24. You notice that our Lord was speaking to a group of Pharisees who had just accused him of being a demon-possessed man. Matthew twelve twenty four says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, 
This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by, by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. So they're taking a, a miraculous supernatural work of Christ and accrediting that supernatural work to actually uh, Satan and his minions. And our Lord is addressing them. And then in verse 34, Jesus called them a brood of vipers. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart speaketh the mouth. See, the analogy is just like a snake has poisonous um, venom in him. He's saying that your words, quite frankly, are quite poisonous as well. So this is the context in which Jesus is, is saying. And then if you look at verse 37, the indication there he's talking about in coming judgment, uh, all words would be, we'd be held accountable for our words. And because um, words are indicating what's in the heart. And that's why our words speak a lot about our character. But notice what he says in, in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Right. Uh, and the, the actual expression, therefore, uh, is rima argos. That's the word, idle words. And it means careless or unprofitable words. So he's really referring to um, people uh, using language. Uh, and quite frankly, using it quite wrongly. And in many cases, he's talking about language that would try to be either critical uh, of of truth, critical of what they know to be um, truth. And um, they just spit out words without actually re- reading the ramifications of what you're saying. Now, how does that link with comedians? And I think that... Uh, we, we, there's no link there with comedians because he's not dealing with comedians. He's there dealing with religious leaders who are so blinded by their own self-righteousness that they can't see truth when truth stands before them. And they're critical of truth because the person who is, uh, they're critical of is a person who is stealing away the audience. And the people are now paying attention to them rather than these religious leaders who are supposed to have a lot of clout. But now they've lost their clout because Christ has come on the scene and um, the people have found him to be uh, one who speaks and deals with matters, uh, spiritual matters, uh, in a way that was quite uncommon at the time. So that drew the attention. That, that, that those, those words, quite frankly, were designed to um, do damage uh, to Christ's reputation. But let me say a word of, of, about comedians along with, with idle words. I think there's some Christians um, who never seem to laugh and who seem to think to laugh is to commit the unpardonable crime. Uh, you meet them on mornings and your whole day is somber because of their they're, they're too serious uh, there's nothing that would give any idea that they met in the presence of the Lord and had any kind of delight um, so I just want to say <laughs> they don't even smile sometimes and uh, we know people like that always like a sourpuss to be honest with you and you try to avoid them because they always look um, so mean that it's discouraging just for the sight uh, but Look, God made us um, with emotions, and one of those emotions is that we have the capacity to to laugh and to enjoy uh, things that are funny. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, according to Psalm four seven and Psalm sixteen eleven and Psalm thirty one thirty two verse eleven, uh, there should be joy and laughter even in the Lord's presence. So the Lord Himself. Uh, has the emotion of laughter. As a matter of fact, there are passages in the, in the book of Psalms that say that God should laugh. Uh, so this is an emotion that's quite legitimate. Uh, and there are quite a lot of things in life 
that are worthy of laughter and are very, very amusing. Um, there's some antics of animals, for example, that you can't watch them in National Geographic without just smiling to think, you know. Uh, certainly God has a sense of humor. There's no question about that. He made some of us, didn't he? Didn't he? But my, my point is that um, comedy and the ability to make people, people laugh is a gift. There's no question about that. And uh, a Christian, I would say, had to be very selective when it comes to the use of, uh, of comedy, comedy. And I think you can use the Bible as a filter as to what is proper and right when it comes to, uh, to comedy. But these uh, stand-up comedy comedians and other people, the other movies, etc., that, that, that are comedies, um, you know, if they're mocking purity or laughing at immorality or m- m- laughing at God or the church, I mean, we should avoid that. But there's nothing wrong in good humor and good laughter. And um, we, I don't see anything, any connection between uh, idle words as used there in that passage and the job that uh, comedians perform. Uh, if it is clean, uh, if it is helpful, if it is positive in its influence, and if it is not neg- negative, I, I see nothing wrong with it because God is not a cosmic killjoy. Uh, God wants us to be joyful. As a matter of fact, he tells us that we should be joyful in, in, in the book of 1 John chapter 15, verse 11. So, And I have no problem with, 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 with certain forms of comedy. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are people who, t- who do therapy in dealing with people who are depressed, hypertension, uh, people who are anxious and, and, and f- with burden with anxiety. One of the things that are often recommended is that they need laughter. Watch a good comedy. Uh, it would lift your spirit and, and take you out of that drab moment. So it has its purpose. It has its use. And um, it's not necessary to be equated with the idle words that are mentioned there in, in Matthew. Does it have a place in the pulpit? I, 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 it depends. You know, there are some pastors that get up there and all those crack jokes. And by the time you finish, it's very much aware that they had nothing to say but they made it people laugh. I think that is not a part of the pulpit. But I see nothing wrong if a person is preaching on a subject and for comic relief to ease the tension and the stress and the, the moment of concentration to inject a joke that is appropriate to the sermon. Just don't bring in something that has no relevance to the sermon. Yeah. I've heard um, I've, some preachers are quite humorous. I, I listened yeah. to one some years ago when I went to St. Vincent when they were doing this um, thing about the outer darkness. And there was a preacher that he he was hilarious. I mean, you were cracking up almost every moment. But there was something about his style that in spite of the fact he made you laugh, he was teaching such profound truth, but it was easy to accept. And I had to commend him. I said, never heard a preacher like you before. And normally I would say that this is not for the pulpit. But he had a unique gift in that capacity. And not many people are gifted that way. They just try to create humor artificially uh, because they really have nothing to say. So I had nothing with the uh, uh, correct use of humor in the pulpit. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.58. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question. 
268-462-7420. It doesn't have to relate to the Bible. It can be about life or why life isn't fair or is fair or maybe what the Bible says on a particular topic. Pastor is here to answer your question from a biblical worldview. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 1454. Pastor, I use that phrase a lot for biblical worldview as I'm introducing and encouraging people to contact us with their questions. What do we mean by that? Well, a biblical worldview is your perspective on life. It has to do with your um, presuppositions that you hold to and uh, the, uh, the basic principles that you look through life to make um, make sense of life, and when we talk about biblical worldview, we're talking about the 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 principles presented in Scripture. Uh, there's a God, that man has fallen, um, that there's such a thing as sin, uh, that Jesus Christ came and He died for our sins that we might redeem, that Jesus Christ was resurrected, that uh, there is a virgin birth, that there is a that death is real that we're going to live someplace forever, that there's a heaven, there's a hell. That's the the, uh, the biblical perspective that uh, we call a biblical worldview. We, we see life through this, uh, it's like wearing spectacles, and the color of your spectacles colors what you see. Similarly, with these biblical principles, this is how we make judgment on things. So to take an example, Nathan, the biblical worldview on what is life. Uh, the biblical worldview of what is life is that God created life and life begins at conception. So when you have that philosophy, that thinking, when you see abortion, uh, quite frankly, you can't support it because your biblical view and your understanding of the Bible that life begins at conception. So if you destroy a life after conception, you're destroying something God has created and God is the only one that should create life and take life. So that would prevent you from, same thing with gender that is confusing today. Biblical worldview, there are only two genders. God created them male and female. Uh, Those are the two genders he created. So I cannot anywhere tolerate the idea that there are five or six different type of people and genders, etc., etc. I so, think it's up to like 50 or something. Uh, now, whatever it is. It's, 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 just, it's crazy. Yeah. Look, listen, once you get away from truth, you have no basis now to hone it back in and bring mm-hmm. it back in. You open the Pandora's box where now people are going to make all kind of lavish claims about who they are. How do you tell one person that he's not a, he's not a dog? Or he's not a rabbit. Uh, some people actually claim it to be animals, tigers on the inside. I mean, it is so stupid to use a word. And that intelli- uh, intelligent people, with all the information we've got, we are embracing uh, ide- ideology and the teaching that is. But there's no answer to it outside of biblical transcendent truth that becomes the absolute basis for judging right or wrong. And by having abandoned the base of what truth is, and saying there's nothing that is absolute, nothing that's transcendent, we are now in a situation where anything goes and nobody can tell anybody that something is right or wrong. That's where we're headed. So every man becomes a little god to himself. And that's where we're headed to utter moral confusion. And we can see it already. And nobody's able to rein it in because if there are no absolutes, everything is relative. What is the message in the Bible 
in connection with uh, in connection to the listener who's just tuned in and they're not familiar they don't claim to be a christian uh, this is the first time they've ever listened to the lighthouse what is the message in the bible and how does it apply to our uh, lives the biblical message of the bible is is very simple uh, it basically is that man was created and that god made provision for man to develop so god put man through a test and God made a restriction upon man. He gave man the greatest freedom that any man has ever had at any time. The entire world is yours, but this one thing I don't want you to trouble. And uh, the devil um, was able to mislead Eve uh, through conversation. And by the way, I might say that that is one of the great weaknesses of women. They always they, they love to talk, and they feel that talking is love. And so therefore, and talking is showing interest in them, etc. That's another thing altogether. But again, he was able to deceive her so that she was able to um, bring upon Adam um, the fact that he also, because he loved his wife, um, partook of the forbidden fruit. And that brought man into sin and depravity. And the, the whole problem is that that created a division between God and man. That's what death is. Death is separation. God said, the day you eat, you're going to die. But it's not just physical death. It is spiritual death. The Bible said that you're dead in trespasses and sin. So that disobedient act created a separation between God and man. And man, as a result, uh, became very corrupt. And with the passing generation, more corrupt and more corrupt. But God, in His grace and His mercy, provided a way to deal with the problem. And that is when He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty of man's sin and, and, and the judgment that was due to man. And what the Bible points out to us is that what is needed of man is to be able to acknowledge the fact that he knows he is willfully uh, a sinner by choice. He's true, he has inherited a sinful nature through his inclining towards evil. But he's also aware that he consciously has willfully gone against God's will as expressed in his word. So he is morally guilty before God, and God is the moral judge of the universe, and there are consequences of that particular offense that man has done. And, and the Bible says that it's death, but it's more than death. It comes to a point of judgment after death, and if that person has not received Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, the Bible said they'd be cast into outer darkness, and the Bible also said they would be tormented day and night unto the ages of the ages. That is the biblical teaching. So it's a warning that there's judgment to come, and we need to escape that judgment and flee the wrath to come, but we need to repent and embrace and trust the work of Christ on the cross, what he did for us. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, two things happen. Number one, God pardons our sin, but there's something more than that. God takes all the righteousness that is in Christ and he imputes it to our account. In other words, he puts us in Christ so that when he deals with us, he no longer deals with us as an offending sinner. He deals with us as a son who has the righteousness of his own son himself because it's imputed to us. So that's the biblical solution to the problem. You know, there are people who say, you know, well, God could have stopped the problem and God created the problem. All right, if you want to say that. But look at the other side. He also solved the problem. So if you're going to blame him for, for one matter, one part of it, well, you don't accept the fact that he has offered a solution. Mm-hmm. The problem today is that the matter of salvation is not an intellectual problem, Nathan. It's a moral problem. Man knows that uh, if there is a God, and if he believes in a God and trusts in a God, that God is holy and will hold him account. 
And that means that, that God has restricted him from what he can do. And man is a rebel. Man wants to live his own life. And especially the biggest problem today is in the area of morality. Man is not prepared to live within the context of marriage to, uh, to um, engage in sexual activity. He wants the liberty and freedom to have sex whenever he wants with whoever he wants. He doesn't want any restriction. That, to my mind, is man's most, uh, the biggest problem we are faced with today. And it's that rebellious attitude that I'm not going to live within the confines of what God, the, 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 the Creator, who has designed this thing called marriage and said these are the parameters uh, for the exercise of sex. I think that the moral issue today, that's why the Bible says what? The fool have said in his where? His heart. Not in his head. There's enough intellectual evidence or wrong for any man to realize this cannot be. This couldn't just happen. But again, um, unfortunately, he allowed his heart to rule his head rather than his head rule his heart. Consequently, um, he is not disposed to surrender to Christ and he continues his rebellion. But that's the biblical solution. Man is a sinner. He's gone away from God. Uh, he needs a savior. He needs forgiveness. God provides that savior, forget that forgiveness, and then God wants to restore that relationship. Very, very. Another Bible says, "Repent and believe." I mean, there could be a simpler formula than that. People want to believe, but they don't want to repent. And you can't have one without the other because it's like two sides of a coin. Uh, it comes with one package. There's a WhatsApp question that's come from Trinidad. Good night, Pastor. Can you please explain First Timothy chapter two, verses one and two? Are prayer warriors wrong? This Sunday, I heard the pastor from a church condemn praying for others without them asking for prayers. Is he right by making this statement? And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Well, I think the Bible passage answers that question. That pastor uh, must have had a, a slip of the tongue, or maybe he is trying to pontificate on something to show that he has some kind of authority that goes beyond Scripture. But clearly, uh, I don't have to... Ask, somebody, Nobody has asked me to pray for them, uh, and I, uh, it's wrong for me to pray if they don't ask me. I can see a guy on the road... Uh, who is in deep straits and uh, who needs a touch of God in his life. I can begin praying for that person, not even without knowing his name. Uh, and I think, I mean, how a pastor could make a statement like that, that you should only pray for people when they ask you to pray, is beyond me. Uh, he either is not reading the Scripture or he's reading another Bible. But that passage in itself is the answer to your to your question. We're told that we should pray for people and those in authority and for, for everybody, basically, as, as much as... as the, and by the way, sometimes it's God that brings that person to your mind. So if you're waiting for that person to, to come to you and say, hey, brother, pray for me, where does the Holy Spirit come in when it comes to prayer and where does God lay the impression upon one's heart? Uh, clearly, uh, this pastor is gone beyond biblical authority, and he's now assuming a position that has no biblical warrant. A follow-up comment that came from the listener who sent that says, uh, and I think you're familiar with the program Unshackled, Pastor. Yeah, yeah. And they say, 
the Unshackled program, which airs on your station, also asks for free volunteers to pray for individuals or prayer warriors all across the world. Is something wrong with praying for others without them asking for prayers? Nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, if you're listening, I want you to pray for me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hope that you're praying for us here. No, sir, listen, I'm glad that the, the program is asking for people to pray for people all, all across the world. That's what he's saying, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. As a matter of fact, I think one of the greatest ministries that the shut-ins could have, I mean, if they really understand the potential of prayer. Mm. Here you are, you're shut-in, you can't come to church, you're bedridden. Uh, and, and many, many times you're alone by yourself. Uh, your mind begins to run places, et cetera, et cetera. If those shuttings, uh, people were shutting, could really understand the dynamics of intercessory prayer and would just be one to say, you know, I can't go to church, but take a list of the people that the church they used to go to. I'm going to pray for these 10 people today, these other people. Listen, it would have a transforming effect in those people's lives. And I would challenge anyone who is listening to the program, who's a shut-in, who think that your ministry is over and maybe, you know, you don't really come in the kingdom. <laughs> Madam, you've got a, a task that, uh, and a ministry that is, is far more powerful, powerful than even the pulpit. Uh, prayer is what connects God with, with, with the world, and it's the great reservoir that brings blessing to people. So that's an important ministry. I am thankful that people are able to pray for me without me asking, because I, I know there's people that, you know, years later they'll say, you know, I'm praying, I was praying for you, or I have been praying for you, and I didn't ask them for it, but I'm thankful for it. So. Yeah, let me s- mention one thing, Nathan, along that line. I remember I visited a lady, her name is Mumsy, I call her Mumsy, she's in Barbados, and whenever I go back to the island, I would visit her. And I went to her, she's she's dead now, but she was a very elderly woman, I would if you had a problem, she had a problem into sickness. I mean, I've never seen a person with so many different types of sickness that lived so long. Hmm. There's something unusual about her. I mean, she was, I can't tell you everything you can think about, but she lived at a very long age. And I remember visiting her and talking. She said, Dave, I don't know if you know this, but when you were a little boy, I could hear you running, coming from school, coming nobody hill. And I used to be praying for you just, I could hear you, you know, your noise. I, I didn't realize <laughs> when she told me that I didn't know that I was so loud. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about maybe, oh, what, 500 feet, 500 yards coming down the little hill coming into my to our home. But she said, I used to pray for you. I was so surprised. I mm. had no idea that long before I was saved, I was a man of prayer. Yeah. You know, and that really was a, a real boost to my spirit. So I would encourage people to do the same. <laughs> Pastor, the question I have for you is, what about these love languages? You sometimes hear married couples referencing it, and I think there's even a book that's been published in relation to yeah. it. Uh, what about it? Who's credited with its origin? Well, the person that wrote the book is Gary Chapman, Dr. Gary Chapman, and he's called The Five Love Languages. And... It came out of his experience of over about 35 or 36 years of, of uh, uh, martial counseling, premartial counseling, uh, and uh, martial counseling. And he said that uh, um, that he decided to go through his notes after so many years to see what really makes people feel loved. Hmm. It was very curious. You know, what makes a wife feel loved or a husband feel loved? And as a result of going through his notes of almost 30 years of, of counseling, he discovered that, quite frankly, there were five areas that uh, made people feel feel love. So he called it the five 
love languages. And it's really the five ways of expressing love emotionally that you feel connected to your partner and you feel that your partner loves you and cares for you. Uh, so he came up with these uh, five languages. And the five of them basically are these, Nathan. There are people who feel love by words of affirmation. Uh, and what they mean by that, what you say to them, you look nice today. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your, your smile. Uh, you're so optimistic. Uh, you know, words. There are some people who thrive on words, encouragement. That's their language. And when a person goes into a marriage, that's the language of that person. If you don't know that language, you'll be speaking Greek, but they only understand English. So what happens is that when you go into a marriage, the problem is that no two people ever have the same love language. <laughs> that's the dilemma. So I'm operating from the level that I feel love when this happens. She feels love when the other thing happens. My problem is that I'm trying to show her love the way I want love. Mm. But she is saying, this guy doesn't understand me. But men are so hard-headed, to be very honest with you, that in spite of the fact that it's clear that they're not getting through, they persist in it until the point where the comes to impasse in the marriage where she says, you know what, it's useless. This guy is completely useless. Why in the world did I marry this insensitive man? You know? And that's where a lot of marriages break down. Something has to change. Now, the problem with the man is he's saying, well, she needs to adjust to my form of love. The wife is saying, that, no, I, I, I'm not wired that way. I'm not made that way. And that's why I think Peter said, dwell with them according to knowledge. knowledge. Let me use a scenario, for example. Suppose there's a, a woman that... Um, how she feels love is affirmation, words of affirmation. So the, she's been uh, working all day, beating, I mean, just doing everything. So the husband as well, he's working all He comes home, he sees her. And he sees her with the vacuum cleaner, whatever it is, whatever it is. And he comes in and he takes the vacuum cleaner and he just does all the, all the work. He figures that's what she wants. So he is surprised that after all of that bedtime now, there's no music. There's no, there's no, and he can't understand the whole thing. What she wanted was a hug. Or what she wanted was to hear, honey, you worked so hard today. I appreciate He figured by doing the work, he is somehow showing her love because his way of expressing love is doing things. Yeah. But she doesn't want doing things. She wants affirmation. <laughs> See? So what happened now, if you go on like that for years, what happened? The marriage is virtually over. The emotional um, uh, tank is empty. And uh, unless people address this matter, uh, and, and by the way, this will solve a lot of marital problems if people would understand that we, we appreciate love and we understand love in a different way. And that's why he's pointing out these things. And uh, from his experience, there are a lot of couples that got married. I didn't even know about these love languages that, that people express, uh, um, ex experience love different way and how to emotionally connect uh, with uh, your partner. But that's essential. So there, there's what you call words of affirmation. Some people just love words. And uh, they're encouraged by hearing. The, the other one, Nathan, is giving and receiving small gifts. The people who thrive on that, they like, uh, you know, it has to be expensive. But you bring a flower, you bring a chocolate, uh, you bring a special 
uh, type of ice cream that she likes. Uh, you you know, and uh, by the way, when you go away, and, and she said, uh, don't for, don't forget to just you know, uh, you know, bring me that little thing. She, when she's saying that to you, that's her language. She loves uh, to be spoiled by little gifts, not anything expensive. Now the problem is, again, take a man that's not his love language, so he constantly forgets. So every time he goes away or he does something, well, he washes the words, he cleans the words, he gives her words of affirmation. But again, it's not connecting because it's not words of affirmation. She wants little gifts. So you see the danger there? Yep. So he talks about that one. The third one he talked about is acts of service. Now, this is the person who likes you to do things for them. Um, like this guy who just come home, he's tired, he sees his wife, you're uh, doing all the work, and she would so much appreciate if he would take that load off of her now and do the vacuum and clean. So he does that, and he finds man alive. She's a flame, quite frankly, because that's the kind of language she wants. So it's not a problem now, but he's doing exactly what she wants. Now notice, he's doing the same thing to two different people. But the response is different because the language of this person is this kind of language. So they mesh, and that really creates this uh, emotional love bank that is there that you can draw down on. So before you share the last two, I'm curious, do you ever advise that someone determine whether or not to marry a potential partner based on whether or not you have similar love languages? Well, let me put it this way. this knowledge was not known to me for quite a long time, to be very honest with you. You've done counseling, and the, the importance of this kind of a connection um, really never really hit me. Uh, studying about it and reading about it, it has opened a completely different world for me. So in premarital counseling, certainly, you have to look at that now. To, to, you, you would ask a person, what's your, what's your fiancé's love language? How does she feel love? Well, lo and behold, if he doesn't know, the marriage is going to end up in disaster. So he should at least know what her love language is. He should know what love language That's why there's so much divorce and so much breakdown with marriage, Nathan, because we're operating at two different levels. This has opened a, a, a world of understanding that once people begin to grasp this concept, I think it could save thousands of marriage. And not only that, rekindle dying marriages if people will just begin to act this, this kind of a way. Uh, I would say it's important to do that. The other thing is that these languages can be learned. See, I'm born a certain way, but you can learn how to respond to me. So you may not be born with that same kind of language that I speak, but clearly if I'm going to a relationship with you, I should know your language and learn to speak your language as same way I learned to understand what your need is and speak to your language so that both people are meeting each other's needs. But Unfortunately, uh, marriage has been reduced to sex. Let me put it that way, Nathan. People get married sex, basically. And they think that sex is going to be the greatest thing in the world and it will save the marriage and everything. And then they discover to their dismay that there comes a time afterward that it becomes mechanical. There's no emotion in it any longer. And the reason why that emotion has been out of it is because the emotional tank has been drained. They have not been showing the kind of affection. And a woman wants to connect with a man. There's no question about that. We are we are very lear- very hard at learning that, quite frankly. We think that we could um we could spend the whole day, do whatever we're doing, 
כאמור, don't even call her, when we do come home, the newspaper, television, maybe the cell phone, she's completely ignored, she's getting our supper, she's been working all day, all whatever, there's no... The, the tank is empty. Emotional tank is empty. We haven't filled anything during the day. We haven't called to say, uh, I just called to say I love you. Like, you know, Stevie Wonder or some other thing mm-hmm. like that, right? Uh, we haven't done that. So it's so drained and this goes on for weeks and for weeks and for weeks and for weeks. And the funny thing about, he can't understand why she withdraws when he wants to make an advance for any sexual area because there's no connection there. And a woman is not like a man. And you can't make a woman a man either. So it's wisdom to understand this and then to use it wisely. Because if this is how she feels love, what are we supposed to do? What's, what has God, what is, the, what, what is the two commandments about? Loving God and loving others. The whole thing about life is about loving. So if I, if she, she needs love. My job is to give her love, vice versa. That's the whole purpose of life, the whole purpose of marriage. So if I am not meeting her love needs, quite frankly, I'm sinning against her, to be honest with you. Hmm. Uh, if we see it in that, that, then we begin to understand, Nathan, now, why so many marriages fail. See, Sometimes hard-headedness that we're not prepared to listen. You've got to do it my way, right? And of course, it's, it's a man's ego, that often stands in the way of humbling himself and saying, you know, honey, I was so wrong. I finally dawned on me how I've been so wrong in dealing with the matter. That is painful, humiliating, but it's something that's needful to bridge and to restore the relationship and rekindle the fire. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. You can call and ask your question, 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can watch the program, listen behind, listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, and also in the comment section, comment your questions on that medium. Now, Pastor... Let, has, let me just say something. Yeah. To, this is an admission to the audience. Uh, I have t- been recently doing a, a lot of um, courses in family and marriages. Of that. There are times I'm reading and I'm almost crying. I'm literally almost crying. I'm saying to myself, what an idiot you were. Uh, what took you so long to understand uh, certain things, you know? Just seriously, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I want to ball as I'm reading these things, literally ball, that I can't believe this. Uh, but again, and I keep saying, why well, didn't have this information before to deal with certain types of matters? So I'm just saying you've got to be self-critical and you've got to realize that you make mistakes. Uh, you're deficient in certain areas. But the thing is to try to make those corrective things uh, and so on. And I say to anybody who's listening, I'm admitting to you that there are a lot of things that I didn't know and that are very painful in learning now that is, is moving me in a direction of where I need to make some real changes in relation to the husband-wife relationship in trying to meet those emotional needs and fill that tank uh, that is so empty in, in many cases. As you mentioned, uh, family and all, let me just draw attention to 
a program that we added. Obviously, That's Truth is the program tonight, but a program we added uh, weekday mornings and weekday evenings called Family Talk. Pastor, are you familiar with Dr. James Dobson? As a matter of fact, one of the courses I'm currently almost finished has to do with a diploma course. In his, his, it's from his institution, but it goes to Light University and the American uh, Association of Christian Counselors. Okay. But it's a fascinating uh Fascinating program. I would encourage anybody, uh, quite frankly, concerned about family life. That's the program to listen to. No question about that. Family Talk. That's at 9 a.m. each weekday morning and also at 10.15. So stay tuned for an extra few minutes after this program finishes, and you'll get to hear Family Talk. Uh, They're bringing culture and your Christian family, your Christian marriage together and preparing you for how culture is combating against your Christian worldview as it relates to your marriage and to your family. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 826. As we wait for your questions to come in, Pastor will continue with the material he has here. Now, Pastor, you're talking about the love languages, and you shared words of affirmation giving and receiving small gifts, acts of service. You said there's five total. So what are the other two? The other one is quality time. Okay. Uh, there are some people, uh, women, and, and who, who judge uh, love by how much time you spend with quality time. Like she wants a walk. She wants to sit down and talk. Uh, uh, she thrives on conversation. And I would say that generally people, women in general, uh, men are not talkers. Women discover to their dismay that the man that was so talkative during the dating process, after the ring is on the finger and into the marriage, suddenly uh, these people seem to become completely dumb. Uh, the only language they seem to know is bed language, but they're not concerned about verbalizing and talking and downloading, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and this person is the type of person who really, really wants conversation. That's how they feel love. So you could be doing a thousand things. You could be, you could be bringing the money in the home. Uh, you can give her a new car. You can buy a new dining room set. You can buy a new washing machine. Uh, you can buy a new dress. You can, you can give her all the perfume that she wants. But guess what? She's cold as ice. Because all of those things you're doing, that's not her language. Her language is, I need time. We need to talk. We need to sit down and converse, et cetera, et cetera. And no matter what you do, if you're not meeting that need, her emotional tank runs dry, and she doesn't feel you really care or you don't, don't love her. Because if you really, truly love her, you talk with her and converse with her. There are some women who that's their primary love language, and no matter what else you do, you can try affirmation, you can try giving gifts, you can try acts of service, but it has absolutely no effect upon them uh, in terms of changing their emotional love towards you until you meet that particular need. And Nathan, think of how many marriages are on the rocks today because of that one thing. Hmm. The husband cannot understand that what the wife wants is to sit down and talk and chat. Right? That's why in the, in the premarital counseling, you often recommend what you call a couch time, Nathan. That is uh, two or three times a week. You decide that no matter when I come home, we're going to spend 15 to 20 minutes, and honey, you tell me anything you want to tell me. Tell me what's bothering you. Tell me how the day went. I am here, and I'm just going to listen. I don't even need to talk. I just want to listen to you. Because a lot of times, men think that women want 
them to solve their problem and give them advice. That's not what they want. They just want you to listen, listen. That's all they want. Uh, and that's how they're made. You say, but, but I'm, not ma- I'm not made that way either. <laughs> you know, I'm not made that But that's what. And if you have a wife, that's what they need. You've got to meet that need. If you don't meet that need, the love tank goes dry. And her response to you, quite frankly, is, is um, almost indifferent. Uh, so that is another thing that needs to be yeah. So if I go to my Bible concordance and I look for love language, am I going to find it? And if not, is this extra biblical material and should we rely on it? Or does the Bible have everything we need? Well, look, I think you can find um, from the Bible itself, if you look at these principles, I think you can find those principles that are, these principles are mentioned, but not, these are the five love languages. For example, we're supposed to speak kind to one another, etc., etc. Uh, we're supposed to do kind acts to one another, etc. Where, where I think the wisdom is coming here is that, and again, remember that the Bible is not an exhaustive book. It didn't give us everything that we need to know. It gives us everything we need to know to live godly, uh, and righteousness in, in this world. But there's not everything in the Bible. For example, it's not an exhaustive science book. It's not an exhaustive psychological book. Uh, but it, it lays down the very broad principles. And that's where men of faith who have studied the Word and through the Holy Spirit in dealing with people, they pick up principles that are applicable to, to Christians, etc., etc. So I, I, there's no question in my mind that this guy has discovered something that needs to be taught. Because I can think that if I had known this many, many years ago, the emotional love tank would have been much more fuller than it is uh, if I had begun to know these principles and apply these principles. And I'm going to suggest to you, Nathan, that there are a lot of marriages right now that are that went to divorce, that there are people listening right now, I'm going to listen to, the, to Dr. Chapman, and will say, you know what? That was the issue, and I didn't understand the issue. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, the wisdom that God gives to men of faith uh, is designed for the benefit of the church. That's why we should study theological books. That's why we should read commentaries. The wisdom doesn't end with us. And God has given to the church teachers and preachers uh, who are, discover certain truths and apply those truths that are helpful to the believer to make his life uh, more successful. Pastor, a question that's come in from Trinidad in relation to the course you mentioned that you are taking. Is the course or diploma in marriage that Pastor Murphy is doing free from D. Johnson? No, it's not free. It's not free. And who is it from? Well, it, it's from the, um, it comes through what is called Light University. And it's also through um, the American, you, you, you become certified to the American Christian Council Association. It's the International Christian Association of Counselors. That's how you, 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 become, you become accredited and you become uh, a specialist in an area. That's, that's what it's about. Okay. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at org, And during this program, you can also join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. Do you have a question? It may pertain to what we're talking about tonight. It may be completely unrelated. You can call and ask it. 268-462-7420. That'll put you live on the air after you speak with the call screener. Again, that number is 268-462-7420. If you don't want to speak live on the air, that's not a problem. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 
782-1454. What is the fifth love language? Uh, the fifth love language has to do with the physical touch. Uh, again, there are women who want to be hugged, want to be cuddled, who want to be kissed, who want to be touched. Um, again, that's the, the way that they appreciate love. Again, again, it's not affirmation, words of affirmation. It's not giving them small gifts. It's not uh, quality time. It's not acts of service. But what they really appreciate is that they love love hugging and kissing uh, and so on and so forth. And, and again, Nathan, um, the power of physical touch is, 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 is so real that um, as a principal uh, now, uh, I make sure that I have 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 to hug my wife. When she comes home, I got to hug her. When she leaves, I got to hug her. I never understood the power of touch. Uh, I am not a very romantic person. Has never been, to be honest with you. Uh, and it, it became diff- the reason for that. But I can't remember one day in my life, my mom hugging me or my dad hugging me. I can't think of a day in my life when my mom and dad ever hugged me. I remember when I was, um, even when I'd grown and gone into the ministry and i go back to Barbados and I would meet my wife, my, my mom. Y- y- strangest thing, I, I, I just found it difficult to just push my hand around and hug her because I was never taught that. It was never shown to me. And it was like, it was like hugging a stranger. It was like a very weird experience. Now, there's some people who are lovey-dovey. I mean, they love to be hugged. They love to be cuddled. That often comes from the home. And the home I came for came from was not a home where we showed much affection. That, unfortunately, um, became part of my life, and it still remains a part of my life. But again, when you begin to learn that you know touch is important, you have to change your way of doing things. It might seem strange for a while to start doing it and acting on it, but it takes uh, you to do that for about six weeks consistently, and then it becomes your habit. So that has now become... Um, my practice as much as possible. And, and I learned that through Nathan. They did a lot of studies, in, um, for example, in, in, in Europe, about uh, with babies, for example, um, babies in clinics and stuff like that. And what they discovered is that babies that hardly were touched, they just disintegrated. Some of them even died. Mm. But the babies that were touched, they flourished. Yeah. There's something about the... Uh, there's a release of, um, I think, oxytocin in, in the body. That the certain touch that releases hormones in the body that cause you to develop. I had no, but it's not only just babies. It's also true of human beings, right? So it's a vitally important. But there are people who, who that's their language. They love to be touched. So a man who believes that because he brings in the money. He does the yard. He carries out this the stuff, uh, the 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 um, garbage. Um, he speaks words of affirmation. He does all, and then wait a minute. This woman is from space. It's the wrong language. It's like me trying to get through to you. Speak French. I speak English. I'm still speaking English. You know. You speak French. So no matter how many French, English words I use, I'm saying that, but. What's wrong with this guy? Mm-hmm. Because the language you understand is French and speaking English. Same thing with your marriage and these love languages. So you've got to learn your partner's language and then speak the language. The thing about it, the language that you have, uh, quite frankly, and uh, most people have what's called a primary language. That's the primary way that you feel that you love. But in addition to the primary language, some people have a secondary language. 
So it might be not just be one, it might be two ways. But the key thing, at least, is to hit the primary one as far as that is concerned. If you're listening and you are able to recall someone has told you at some point in the past that the Radio Lighthouse doesn't have practical information, I challenge you to give them a call right now. Tell them to tune into That's Truth. And this information that Pastor is sharing about the love language is as practical as you're going to find using biblical principles to strengthen your marriage. And maybe if your marriage is on the rocks, maybe even save your marriage question that has just come in from WhatsApp. How do you deal with anger and get rid of it? This is my weak point. How can I overcome this? Uh, could we deal with anger? Another, another. Yeah. I, I, we're going to respond to that um, if the person doesn't mind. I want to get through this, this thing material today. Uh, but I, I would like to deal with anger as well. We can do that as a program because that yeah. is, that's a particular matter. Yeah, thank you very much for sending in that question. And thank you for your transparency in uh, asking that question and the way that you asked it. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 838. Uh, Pastor, obviously these love languages relate to marriage. How do you, are you naturally born with a particular one or how does it work? I think it is difficult to say you're born with it. I think it's more something that you learn from within your family setting. Uh, If your mom or dad gave you words of affirmation, uh, and that is something you're accustomed to. That's how you thrive. That's how you feel good about yourself. I think that is, is so. I do feel, though, that there may be a possibility that some people are naturally born inclined in certain ways, that some people like touch, whatever it is. But whether or not we are born with it, we, or whether or not it is something that's a learned behavior, and I'm more inclined to believe it's a learned behavior. The, the, the key thing here is that know what makes you feel love and make, know what makes your partner feel love. And please understand that the hardly do you ever find in a marriage that both people speak the same love language. And that's where the adjustment has to be made within the marriage context. If that adjustment is never made, you're operating at two different wavelengths. You, are, you love your wife, no question about that. You believe you're doing everything to show your wife that you love her. But have you ever thought about it that the way you're going about it is not the way she perceives it? But why doesn't she perceive it now? Because she's different than you. A woman is not a clone of a man. She's completely different. She thinks different than you. She acts different than you. And this is why the craziness about transgenderism is so stiff, silly and so stupid. Because that's how God has designed us. He's programmed us a, a certain way. So I would say to you, Nathan, I believe it's more of a learned behavior. And that's where, uh, uh, vitally point now, that's why uh, it is important when you're dating your partner, you have and you should get to know the family. Mm-hmm. See how the family operates, how, how he relates to his mom, how he relates to his dad, how he relates to the members within his family. Because that same way of, of relating is going to be carried over into your marriage. See, And we need a lot more of attention on these kind of things when people are... are they, uh, one other thing. I, this is where I, I am for premarital counseling. But I'm also for pre-engagement function, uh, function. And that's where it's needed more than premarital. Once a person is engaged, it's very hard to move them out of engagement. They're mm-hmm. going to go through the married. And a lot of the things that they need to learn is before they go through the engagement. So they should have pre-engagement. Is this the right person for me? That's what counseling is about. Uh, Pastor, do you, from the judgment and, and all, do you think that we can make it? Do you think that we're compatible, emo- whatever it is? That's the information you need. But the moment you say we engage, 
normally within a year you're going to get married. And it's very difficult now for a pastor to persuade you because you send out the invitations, you told people, everybody, now it seems as though you don't know what you're doing. It's an embarrassment to you. And I think that's one of the major mistakes people make. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good night, good night. Hi, good night, sir. How are you doing, Mr. Williams? Not too bad on you, but on this one, good night. Good night. What can we do for you, Brother Williams? Yeah, Pastor Murphy, the other explanation I want from Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4? But 16 to 19. Okay. I will listen up here. Okay. Thank you. We will read, I'll read those for you. First Peter chapter 4, verse 16 to 19 says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And verse 19, <coughs> Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Well, I think that passage basically is dealing with the believers going through some form of suffering. And, you know, we're given the idea that if you come to Christ today, it should be easy sailing. We have um, health, wealth, prosperity. We have blessings. The, the, it's, a, it's such a, a distorted message concerning what's involved in Christianity that people come into the Christian faith because of what they want. And they want all the good, good, good deeds and all the blessings. But the other side of the coin is that when you come into the Christian faith, you also are going to face um, opposition, persecution, hardship, and sometimes, let's face it, tremendous suffering. And uh, when we go through that, um, the Bible says our disposition, when we realize that we're suffering in the cause of Christ or for the cause of Christ or for biblical principles, he said rejoice. Uh, as a matter of fact, our Lord said, Rejoice when men persecute and speak evil of you. Now, that is a very strange expression. It doesn't say feel happy about it, but rejoice. Because one of the things that is indica- indicative of suffering for Christ is that you're a real, authentic, genuine believer. That's one of the, the proofs, a very fine proof, that you are a true Christian, that you experience suffering in the cause of Christ. And uh, so that's what it's talking about. Uh, and then, of course, if... Um, he points out that if um, believers are going to be saved, where should the unrighteous? Um, I forgot the expression there. Nate. We did it again. Uh, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Yeah, so the ungodly person, uh, quite frankly, if the those that deem themselves righteous uh, are going to be saved in the sense that they are going to, in the process of uh, going through a lot of these experiences that you're talking about, I mean, like persecution, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, what about the person who is not a, a believer, et cetera, et cetera? So it, it's, it's really comparing the believer and uh, saying that the believer is going to be saved and scarcely be saved. i got to check out that particular expression to see exactly what it is. I can't speak off the, my, my cuff. So next time I come, I'm going to ex- ex- explore that particular expression safely. Um, scarcely be saved was the, 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 uh, the Greek behind that to give a better explanation of that. But the whole idea is that Christians are f- going through suffering 
uh, judgment has begun at the house of the Lord in, in the fact that the Lord has allowed in this suffering to happen within the church. The unbeliever, uh, when this particular form of suffering that is going to come their way, um, how are they going to respond to that? And they're not going to be able to respond in a way biblically because they're not willing to go through the same suffering that believers go through. I think that's the contrast between the saved and the unsaved person. We can endure the suffering because of the joy of the Lord and we know to be suffering on the behalf of Christ. When suffering comes in the way of the unbeliever, uh, he uh, has no interest in suffering. He wants to take the easy way out. So he's not inclined to endure any kind of suffering, even though that kind of suffering might lead him to the Lord to put the faith and trust in Christ. He's not prepared to do that. Brother Williams, thank you very much. For I will your come call. back to this verse, uh, these verses next week. Thank you for your call. We appreciate it. Appreciate you encouraging others to tune in to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We still have 14 minutes left in this episode. What does that mean for you? It means hurry up and send in your question, but we still have time for it. Send it via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. Or you can call and ask it live on the air, 268 462 7420. As we await questions, Pastor, you're talking about the love languages. I want to say yeah. something else, Nathan. Uh, anytime a couple or a partner feels love, mm-hmm. they are inclined to hear out each other and try to find solutions to their problems. So that's why, again, these love languages are so important to, to build the emotional tank between you and your partner. It's when you don't feel love. You're not prepared to listen to anything the person has to say. And quite frankly, the only solution you want is out of the marriage. Mm. But if you feel love, you really, really, no matter how bad it gets, maybe he loses his job, maybe um, there's a tragedy, whatever it is, you can endure that. The one thing you can't endure is the fact that you I'm in this way, and I don't feel loved at all. I don't, there's no emotional connection between me and this person. Why would I want to remain in this marriage? Why should I try to work to a solution to a problem? So uh, this is such a crucial thing that, because I think a lot of the, the problems in marriage is exactly at this point where the emotional tank is empty because one partner, or maybe even both, because if this person doesn't feel love and uh, they can't respond back in love, so you've got now, this person here is not feeling love, but they're not, so this other partner now, so both people say, wait a minute, why in the world are we in this marriage? We're not happy, there's no emotion there whatsoever. Let's just call it an end, see. But again, there's hope. What if we've been operating on the wrong basis now? What if we start understanding, okay, honey, tell me, what do you want from me? What would make you feel treasured and loved and secure? And she says, oh, okay, sorry. Pastor, we have Codrington. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question very quickly, please. Okay, my question is that God knows everything whatsoever. He knows before he created the world. Did he did know that Satan is going to kick him? And if he knows Satan is going to kick him, why he loves Satan on earth to go and have this powerful act between man and woman because he's so powerful. So I just want to know that question and maybe I can wait for an answer and then maybe help you out. Yeah, 
I, I am not too sure I have the ability to answer that question. That's a question that I think has bothered the minds of theologians for centuries, and no one has come up with an adequate answer. Um, we wonder if God knew that man would sin because he knows everything, why then did he allow um, create man in the first case, and then why did not prevent the act of rebellion against himself? This is a great mystery we don't know. That's what is called the, the area of theodicy. I personally uh, believe that somehow man is wrapped up in the final destruction of Satan. And uh, man, as it were, is the medium through which the whole problem of sin in the universe created by the downfall of Satan is going to be solved. And I I remember that God is just and God is holy and God is righteous. And I believe whatever God does... The, the angelic moral beings that he has created, when they see God's activity, it has to be seen as just and not just a selfish vengeance. And that's where I think man comes in. That somehow in dealing with the whole satanic plot against God, it must not be seen as though God is vengeful. It must be seen as though God is given retributive judgment on him because he has completely created the mess uh, that not only is he morally wrong for his own personal downfall and one-third of the angels. But he has ruined God's creation. And God now acts in, in, in justice to do that. And so I think it's, I, I, that's my, my, my concept of how, what does man play in this, in this whole role. The other thing is that I think in some way, uh, in God's intention, to bring man to a point of elevated, I don't want to use the word godhood, that's not a term to use, but to be more like God, I think that this whole matter of the fall and the pardoning and the uh, imputing of Christ's righteousness to humankind and the new nature is somehow wrapped up in the process whereby uh, what the devil offered Eve, that you be like God. Not that you be God, be like him. I think in, in some sense, the whole matter of the fall and the creation of man is wrapped up in that. That is my view. Again, I can't bring you a verse of Scripture, um, um, but I know that every single theologian, every theological book, these are areas that everybody wants to know answers. We don't know. God has not revealed to us his thinking behind this whole thing. We can only speculate, but we must speculate in such a way that God is seen to be just and righteous, never that God is unholy. Remember the Bible said, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man with evil. So when a person is tempted to do evil, you can know one thing, it is not of God. Absolutely. Uh, So whoever, it could be that God permits you to be tempted, but God himself is not going to uh, tempt you with evil to do evil. So when you think that, you know, well, maybe the Lord is, is tempting me, he doesn't tempt you to do evil. He tests you to see if the, the temptation you have, if you're going to be morally strong and remain true to his word uh, or not. I think that's what you call testing. But that would be my explanation. And there's no person I can refer to, no theologian I can refer to, that uh, I think has solved this problem because it is one of those great mysteries that we have. Uh, by the way, I, 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 I've been, I love electronics. And it's one of my side things. Up to now, I don't understand what electricity is. I, quite frankly, some people don't even, they don't even know what light is. They're saying it's a wave, and now they're saying it's made of particles. These are all mysteries. And if that is a mystery, 
Imagine how much more profound is the mystery about God in dealing with us in this whole universe. But because I don't understand the light, doesn't mean I don't use it, yeah. right? Uh, I know it's there, I use it, see? And because I don't understand everything about God, doesn't mean I don't bow to Him. I see His greatness, His magnificence, His uh, magnitude, uh, His eternality, His, his sovereignty, his, his, his wisdom. Nothing brings you more to your knees that to recognize this God is so much great and so much superior. He's worthy of me humbling myself before Him. And all the answers I need, I will get eventually when I meet Him. Codrington, thank you very much for your call. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, in the last five minutes of this episode, uh, any other thoughts you want to share in relation to the love languages? And I know there are people that are asking, Pastor, how can I find out my love language? Well, I would suggest to you, uh, some, there are some, a few ways that you can find out your love language. Um, first of all, observe your, observe your behavior. Uh, and what I mean by that, how do you typically express uh, love to other people? I would suggest to you, that generally, the way you show love is the way you expect love to be returned to you. Okay. So I think that's one of the the key signs. If you're a type of person, you're a handy person, and you you love doing things like that, chances are you want you know you 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 you're more in in in, in um, aligned with people who are along the same lines as you. So I think the first thing is to observe your own behavior uh, and uh, how you show love to others uh, because the way you show love love to others is normally the way that you expect that to be returned to you. For example, suppose you love uh, to give words of affirmation. That's your language. You love words of affirmation. So suppose somebody is is touching you or somebody... Suppose your wife is a lovey-dovey person but you're not a lovey-dovey person. What you thrive on is her saying... Man, I can't tell you how much I admire your skills and how much I admire what you do. I mean, you are really, really a super person. I appreciate that. And uh, that is what gets you going. So I would suggest you observe your own behavior. The other thing is, what do you complain about most often? Uh, I think that helps you a little bit. Uh, You're asking some very uh, heartfelt questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because what you complain about norm is what you want, and what you want is your love language. To be very honest with you, uh, maybe again, not trying to be very crude, but maybe you're a person who loves touch, so you like a lot of intimacy. Your wife, that's not her language, uh, a lot of intimacy. But the only way you can get that intimacy out of her is if you show her. Her love, her way of love, and you, she maybe want affirmation. You'd be surprised the affirmation that you give to her. How much more she's more intimate now because she feels love. So don't think that she because you are doing something or you. Um, but the complaining, whatever you complain about, generally speaking, is what you want, and that is. What, and then the other one, what do we often request most often from our partner or from somebody? You know. What do you often request? I think that that will help you as well to uh, to know that uh, that is is just. So I think what you uh, your own behavior, what you often complain about, and what you you request most often. I think those are three of the ways that you can actually come to an understanding is what how am I how am I made up how am I figure, figure how am I been uh, conditioned uh, within my home within my family. 
um, you know, this is my, my language. I think that is, those are three simple ways, Nathan, that I, I think that would be very, very helpful. The other thing I would like to say quickly, Nathan, about this is that, um, again, we these are languages that can be learned. If they could not be learned, every marriage is in trouble. Because if I married a woman who is very affectionate, loves a lot of touch, but that's not me. I want affirmation. I want you to say, "Hun, you're the smartest guy on planet Earth. Uh, you've got skills that very few people have got. I appreciate this. That's what... Um, so I'm not getting that from her. Uh, again, it's very hard for me to feel love. And even though she's very affectionate, strange enough, I am not inclined to return affection to her in that regard. So it's, I have to learn her language now. Uh, so I hope you see what, what I'm saying, Nathan. These are not things that are made in concrete. These are things that we can, skills that we can develop and languages that we can, just like you can learn a foreign language. Right. You speak English, you can learn French. You can learn these love languages. And remember, it all has to do with emotionally connecting with your partner and filling up that love tank uh, that you can draw down on. But if the tank goes empty, the marriage is in trouble. What advice do you have for the listener who's asking, Pastor, is there hope for my marriage? Uh, listen, I am one person that believed this, and anybody that I've counseled, the first, one of the first questions I, I try to settle, are you a Christian, are you a Christian? And as long as they can affirm to me that they are truly authentic Christians, I say to them, this marriage can work, this marriage can be healed. I have no doubt in my mind that two safe persons can make a marriage work no matter how bad it has become. That's the kind of hope we have because we're not just uh, operating on the human level. God is involved in this thing. The Holy Spirit is involved. If I'm indwelt by the Spirit, you're indwelt by the Spirit. we got the availability of God's Word. we got the counsel of wise men who have given us principles to, to operate by. And if believers are prepared to make the necessary changes to make the marriage work, it can be salvageable and there's hope. There's no hopeless marriage if you're a believer and the two of you are Christians. In the last 15 seconds, you said no matter how bad it has gotten, you stand by that? Of course. Of course. If that were not true, Nathan, there's no hope for anybody. But we offer Christian hope in Christ Jesus. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.